Chapter the Twenty First of The Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wounded. At the extreme end of Mr. Mabbott's long double countered shop was an expansive archway closed in general by folding doors through which entrance was afforded to a narrow sitting room the length of which was just by so much less than the width of the shop as was required for a passage and a staircase once a year the open archway revealed a shimmering mass of snowy sugar work the towers and turrets of a castle on a rock or the illuminated windows of a magnificent palace fit for any princess of fairyland with pleasure gardens and lake or fountain and pond wherein stately swans floated and were overlooked by dames and cavaliers created by the confectioner and his satellites for the fifty other weeks it was simply a snug parlour comfortably furnished according to the fashion of the time and it was in this room we left jabez whilst good-natured ben travis leaving his more patriotic comrades to hack and hew at their pleasure galloped hither and thither in search of a surgeon to dress the wounded arm every doctor in the infirmary had his hands full dr hull from his windows in mosley street and dr hardy from his in piccadilly had been satisfied that if they ventured forth they might soon need doctoring themselves and they both pleaded medical etiquette in excuse for their lukewarmness they were physicians not surgeons he bethought himself of mr hurtley in oldham street but even he had more than one wounded patient in his surgery and was loath to encounter the danger outside ben travis however would take no denial he waited until sundry gaping wounds were closed cuts plastered and bandaged a broken limb set and a bullet extracted even lending a hand himself where unskilled help could be available being less bemused with liquor than many of his cavalry corps then although they were almost within a stone's throw of their destination as oldham street was not safe for a civilian to cross on foot with loaded cannon in such close proximity travis mounted the surgeon behind him the latter not sorry to have the yeoman's capacious body in its conspicuous uniform for a shield as they dashed across into back piccadilly to mabbott's back door ere they rode off the younger man cast a sharp glance of scrutiny at chadwick's drawing-room windows and bowed low in recognition of the face for which he was looking the face he had seen so pale and pitiful bending over an afflicted father and so shocked to hear of even an apprentice wounded in that father's behalf ben travis had a big body and a big heart but he had little knowledge of the hearts of womankind or he might have found another solution for ellen chadwick's fainting fit he did not know how she had trembled for another on seeing him dismount at mr hurtley's door nor how she had watched too sick and sad to descend to the dining-room when the spoiled dinner was at length set on the table watched eagerly and anxiously her heart's pulsations counting each second a minute as hours elapsed before she saw them mount and ride away and noted the direction they took and she saw no admiration in the low bow of the fine soldierly young gentleman only the polite salutation of a stranger introduced casually by the untoward events of the day albeit having rendered her father a service and professed himself the friend of jabez she was bound to recognise him as he passed 
to Jabez himself, lying faint and exhausted with loss of blood on kind Mr. Mabbott's chintz-covered squab sofa, everything was a haze, and the people around him little more than voices. He was perfectly conscious when Mr. Mabbott hastily cut away the sleeve of his jacket and bound the wounded arm as tightly as towels could bind. When Mr. Ashton put his troubled face into the confectioner's small parlour, Mr. Mabbott was in the act of reaching from a corner cupboard a small square spirit decanter and an engraved wine-glass in order to administer a dose of brandy to the young man, then rapidly sinking into unconsciousness. Under its influence he revived for a while, but as the blood gradually soaked through the toweling, he grew fainter in spite of brandy, and by the time Ben Travis, who had surely kept the promise made in schoolboy days, brought Dr. Hurtley to his aid, he had lapsed into a stupor from which the manipulations of the surgeon barely aroused him. "'You should have tied a ligature tightly as possible round the arm above the wound first thing,' said the surgeon, addressing those around him. "'A bit of tape, a strip of linen, a garter, anything narrow to stop the hemorrhage. Had this been done, there would have been less effusion of blood, and our patient would not have been so utterly prostrated.' "'Just so, just so,' assented Mr. Ashton adding, but Mr. Mabbott had done his best, no doubt, interrupted the surgeon, or our young friend might have bled to death, but the tight, narrow ligature would have been better, and many a valuable life may have been saved or lost this day through that bit of knowledge, or the want of it. Mr. Ashton's just so, just so, I dare say you are right, was followed up by, shall we be able to remove him to-night, Mr. Hurtley? He is my apprentice, and has been injured whilst bravely protecting your opposite neighbour, Mr. Chadwick, my brother-in-law. I should like to get him home to be under Mrs. Ashton's care, as well as to relieve Mr. Mabbott, to whom I am sure we all feel greatly indebted. "'Don't name it, I beg, at fearful times like this,' said Mr. Mabbott, with a shudder. "'It does not do to think of trouble or of ceremony. But I do not imagine the doctor would counsel the young man's removal to-night.' even if the road were clear and safe. Certainly not, replied Mr. Hurtley, as he packed up his lint and instruments, and in my opinion, if you remove him to-morrow, you must do it carefully on every account, and will have to smuggle him away in a hackney-coach, lest he should be pounced upon as a wounded rebel. Two days, however, elapsed before Mr. Mabbott's sofa lost its occupant, and even then, the strong arm of Tom Hume and the loving care of Bess were needed to help Jabez, feeble and wan, to the hackney carriage brought up to the back door, which bore him slowly away, avoiding the main street until they passed under the arched gateway in Back Mosley Street, whence he at last emerged at a headlong pace to prevent Miss Augusta getting into danger. Some remembrance of this flashed through the brain of Jabez as the coach stopped in the courtyard, and on the house doorsteps, he beheld Mrs. Ashton, Augusta, and Ellen Chadwick, all three waiting to receive him, as if he had been a wounded relative returning from far-off victories to his own hearth. Nay, the very servants hovered in the background, even cross Kezia pressing to have a first look at him. Mrs. Ashton herself, with the graceful dignity which sat so well upon her, went down the steps to lead him up and into the house, and as she touched his left hand and unwounded arm, she said impressively, "'Jabez Clegg, I understand we owe our brother's life to your self-abnegation, if not that of our daughter also. 
I regret that your noble intervention should have cost you so dear, but I thank you most truly, and shall not forget it. The stately lady's eyes were humid as she led Jabez into their common parlour, the room in which Augusta had displayed his specimens of incipient artistry, and there placed him on the large soft sofa, already prepared with pillows for his reception. The attention touched him to the heart, the humble apprentice feeling himself honoured, raised the lady's hand to his lips as gracefully and reverently as ever did knight of old romance, and then he would have closed his eyes for very weariness, but a little soft warm hand stole into his feeble one, and thrilling through him a faint tinge chased the deathly pallor from his face, as Augusta's voice, full of commiseration, said apologetically, "'I had no idea, Jabez, that I was sending you into danger when I asked you to look for Uncle Chadwick. I'm so sorry you've been hurt.' He held the little hand of his master's daughter for one or two delicious minutes, while he answered feebly, "'Never mind, Miss Ashton. I was only too glad to be there in time,' and lapsed into so ethereal a dream as he released it, that the low, broken, grateful thanks of Ellen Chadwick left but the impression on his mind that she was very much in earnest, and had called him Mr. Clegg. Mr. Clegg! When had the college boy, the blue-coat apprentice, been anything but Jabez Clegg? Mr. Clegg! It was from such lips social recognition, and so blent strangely with his dream. Ah! Could he but have known how much of the latent tenderness was embodied in those incoherent expressions of a daughter's gratitude, or that the speaker dared not trust her faltering tongue with his Christian name. Mrs. Ashton called the young ladies away. My dears, you had better resume your occupations and leave Jabez to repose. It is not well to crowd about an invalid on so sultry a day as this. So Miss Chadwick went, with her tatting-shuttle, back to her seat by the one window where the friendly shade of the dove-coloured curtains screened from observation any glances which might chance to stray from the tatting to the sofa, and Miss Ashton went back to her music-stool, where the sunbeams, falling through the other window, lit up her lovely profile, shot a glint of gold through her hair, and showed the dimples in her white shoulder to the half-shut dreaming eyes of Jabez, who listened entranced as she practised scales and battle-pieces, waltzes and quadrilles, totally unconscious that she was feeding a fever in the soul of the apprentice, more to be feared than the stroke of Aspinall's sabre, though it had cut into the bone. Not that she was so simple a schoolgirl, and ignorant of the power of beauty. She was pretty well as romantic as any girl of that romantic age, who, being fifteen, looked a year older, and learned the art of fascination from the four-volume novels of the period. Mrs. Ashton herself subscribed to the fashionable circulating library of the town, but she was somewhat choice in her reading, and had Miss Augusta stopped where her mother did, she would have done well, but it so happened that, after feasting on the wholesome peas her mother provided, she fell with avidity on husks obtained surreptitiously elsewhere. Kisses from Augusta could always coax coins from Papa, and as a Miss Bohanna kept open a well-known, well-stocked circulating library in Shude Hill, albeit in a cellar, its contiguity to Bradshaw Street and Mrs. Broadbent's enabled Miss Ashton, or Cicely for her, to smuggle in amongst her school books other fictions, such as Elizabeth Helm and Anna Maria Roach used to concoct, 
and Samuel Richardson provided to delight our grandmothers with. So Miss Ashton was quite prepared to be admired and play the heroine prematurely, but she had been reared in the same house with Jabez, had been caressed and waited upon by him as a child, and anything so absurd as her father's apprentice falling in love with her had never dawned upon her apprehension. Then not even his wounded arm could make him handsome enough for a hero, so she plunged through the Battle of Prague and Lodoishka and glided into the Copenhagen waltz with no suspicion of a listener more than ordinary. Mrs. Ashton, who was back-stitching a shirt-wristband, family linen was then made at home, imagined that Jabez was dozing, and, unwilling to disturb him, only spoke when a false note, or a passage out of time, called for a low-voiced hint to her daughter, or when she found occasion to make some slight observation to the equally silent Ellen. Presently the clock in the hall proclaimed five. Miss Ashton closed music-books and piano. Miss Chadwick completed a loop, then put her tatting away in a small oblong red Morocco reticule. Mrs. Ashton laid the wristband in her work-basket, which she put out of sight in a panelled cupboard within the wall, sheathed the scissors hanging from her girdle, and folded up the leather housewife containing her cut skeins of thread, etc. James brought in the tea-board with its genuine china tea-service, plates with cake and bread and butter, and whilst he went back to Kezia for the tea-urn, in walked Mr. Ashton, and with him the Reverend Joshua Brooks. One might have supposed his first salutation would have been to the lady of the house. Nothing of the kind. With a passing nod to Mrs. Ashton, who had extended her hand, he marched straight to the sofa, and greeted its occupant with, "'Well, young cheat the fishes! So you've been in the wars again?' "'Yes, sir,' said Jabez, attempting to rise. "'Lie still, lad. And so you thought a velveteen jacket, defensive armour against sharpened steel?' "'I never thought about it, sir.' Uh, "'Then I suppose you reckoned a young man's arm worth less than an old man's head, eh?' Jabez smiled. "'Certainly, sir. Uh, I thought as much.' Then, darting a keen, inquisitive glance from under his shaggy eyebrows at the prostrate young fellow, he added in his very raspiest tones, "'And I dare say you've no notion whose sabre carved the wing of the goose so cleverly.' What little blood was left in his body seemed to mount to the face of Jabez. The old scar on his brow, which every year made less conspicuous, purpled and grew livid. Old Joshua needed no more. Ah, I see you do. Well, are you inclined to forgive the fellow this time? All ears were on the alert. Jabez caught the quick turn of his kind master's head. He hesitated, paled and flushed again. Joshua Brooks waited. There was some indecision in the reply when it did come. "'I'm not sure, sir, but he was very drunk. I don't think he would have done it if he had been sober.' "'Just so, Jabez, just so,' assented Mr. Ashton, with evident satisfaction, and a tap on his snuff-box lid. Ben Travis had revealed the name of Mr. Chadwick's assailant to the manufacturer, and he to the chaplain. "'Oh, that's your opinion, is it?' cried the latter crustily, wheeling sharply around to disguise a smile. "'Here, madam, let's have a cup of sober tea after that.' "'I think, Mr. Brooks,' said Mrs. Ashton, as she seated herself, "'with all due deference to you, I think you asked too much from Jabez. 
I do not consider drunkenness any excuse for brutality. No excuse for the brute, madam, certainly, but a reason why the reasoning man should forgive the brute incapable of reason. Just so, parson, chimed in Mr. Ashton, laying his Barcelona handkerchief across his knee. I don't see it, sir, argued Mrs. Ashton, handing a willow-patterned cup and saucer with his tea to her interlocutor. A man who is a brute, when intoxicated, should keep sober. For my own part, I should be loath to let the same stick beat me twice. Our apprentice has borne quite too much from that fellow. She waxed indignant. And there is a limit to forgiveness. Yes, madam, answered the parson snappishly. There is a limit to forgiveness. But the limit is not seven times, but seventy times seven. There was no more to be said. The rough chaplain spoke with authority, and from experience, and Jabez knew it. End of chapter the twenty-first